Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin. In today's episode, we'll be continuing on our theme with our monthly Q&A sessions, and I'm so excited. Today, we're going to be rebroadcasting a podcast that I did with the great Ben Azadi, who runs the Keto Camp podcast. Ben is a good friend. Uh, we're actually keynoting together in February down in the uh, Miami Biohacking Conference, so swing by if you're in town for that. But we talk about, Ben asked me a number of questions and we have some great discussions. And please check out Ben's other, uh, his other great Keto Camp episodes. He has some amazing guests on the show. Also, let us know uh, how you like this format. If you want to continue doing these monthly uh, Q&A sessions in addition to our, our usual episodes. If you're enjoying this program, please hit that subscribe button, or even better, leave a review. Your support makes it possible for us to create the quality programming that we're continually striving for. Also, let us know if there is a certain topic that you would like to see covered or a particular guest that you would like to hear from. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Ben Azadi. The number one cause of death in worldwide is a heart attack. The heart attack is due to narrowing of the blood vessels. The accepted treatment today is to go in and do an emergency procedure where you mechanically open up the blood vessels with a stent. Things like stents or even blood pressure medicines can lower the blood pressure, but they don't address the underlying damage to the blood vessels, which continue. The key thing about these lifestyle changes are that they get at the root cause and they actually slow down or can reverse the diseases that that modern medicine primarily treats the symptoms for. They may be life-saving in the moment, but overall, we still move along the path to those chronic diseases. Fascinating thing about mTOR is that it's now linked to basically every single one of the chronic diseases. When we change mTOR around, we actually affect the phenotypes of aging, all the way from hair loss, gray hair, wrinkles, menopause, hearing loss, periodontal disease, all these things actually slow down when we turn mTOR off. Now people eat all the time, which turns mTOR on, and the types of foods they eat also turn mTOR on. What we're seeing today is a situation where mTOR is turned on all the time. There's a credible explanation of why turning on mTOR can drive all these chronic diseases and even driving aging and shortened life expectancy. Dr. Robert Lufkin, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Ben, brother. It's great to be back and see you again. <laughs> great to see you, brother. I was on your podcast, what was it, like a year and a half ago now, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. We had a lot of fun, and you've been up to a lot of cool things ever since we had our conversation. You have a, a brand new book coming out in 2024, which we're going to take a deep dive into. I was just telling you, Robert, I, I read your book because your team sent it over to me, uh, the PDF version of it. I loved it. Speaking my language, I was like, yes, exactly. Yes. But here's the thing <laughs> that I have the most respect for you when it comes to your career, what you stand for, and the, why, why you wrote the book. I actually took an excerpt from the book. It's a very short passage. I'm going to read it. I'm sure you don't mind. It's very short. And uh, I want to start right here, right? So you are 100% in the medical establishment, is what you said. You are all for organized systems. And your background showed that. You served as a president of a major international med medical societies, lectured worldwide, and been paid by universities, drug companies, and research institutions. So your credentials were clean. They still are, you say. Then, well, you say you were the unofficial spokesperson for the establishment. Then something happened where you developed four diseases. Let's start right there. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I was I was well into my career at uh, teaching at uh, major medical school. Uh, things were were going great. I just had two kids, and suddenly I came down with these four chronic diseases, which um, you know I was very familiar with. And actually, my father had gotten those same diseases, and he died of them. But he was almost ninety years old when he died, and the problem was, I. I wasn't 90 years old. I, I had kids that weren't even in elementary school yet. And, um, you know, 
putting two and two together, this story wasn't going to end well, you know, because I'd already gotten the diseases at such a young age. So I went to my doctors uh, and they they said, no problem, we'll take care of it. They put me on a prescription drug for each one of the each one of the diseases which I took and um, the symptoms got better. But uh, I didn't like the way this was playing out. So I, I began to, uh, out of largely out of self-interest, I began to like question what was going on. And I began to take a look at the literature and there was a lot of new things that had come out uh, in the last few years that were different than what I had been taught and, and indeed what I was teaching and what many of my colleagues still believed about, particularly about these, these chronic diseases, the four of which that I had and, and several other ones, and how um, modern medicine is really treating the symptoms of them and that these diseases, many of them share a common root cause that... Um, can be reversed uh, and addressed with things like lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress. And um, that's, that's what I began to do. I, I looked closely at my own lifestyle and I began to address these, these things. And uh, long story short, uh, I went back to see my doctors and they couldn't believe it. They said, what's going on? What have you done? You know, you don't need these prescriptions anymore. So they canceled the prescriptions and um, I, you know, I, I turned the page on my life and uh, now I want to help communicate this message to other people, my colleagues, and most importantly, all of us out there who are on this, this path to, you know, to health and, and eventually we're facing these chronic diseases because these chronic diseases are the diseases that will determine our own longevity and kill, you know, 80% of us die of one of four or five of these chronic diseases. Oh my gosh. So those those four that you had specifically were hypertension. So you had high blood pressure, gout and arthritis, and you had abnormal blood lipids, and then you were pre-diabetic where your glucose level started to rise, A1C started to rise. So all four of those, and they might be five if we separate gout and arthritis, but let's say four or five of those uh, are lifestyle related, right? And then you identified, okay, my lifestyle caused these symptoms, the medication were treating the symptoms, but there's a mismatch there because if lifestyle caused it, but medication is taking care of the symptoms, I don't think this medication is going to actually get to the cause because that's not what caused it. It was something else. So you started changing your lifestyle, but what were some of those first steps that you took and some of those individuals that you started studying? Because your book has, by the way, your book is called Lies I Taught in Medical School and the Truths That Can Save Your Life. The foreword is by Dr. Jason Fung, who my audience loves. You reference a lot of colleagues like Gary Tobbs and a lot of people in our space. So who are, who are some of those first people you started studying? And what were those first steps that you took with lifestyle to help reverse these four conditions you had? And if I could, let me, let me uh, emphasize one thing you said before is that the yeah. um, important fact that, that I wasn't aware of, it was a wake-up call for me, was that the approaches to these chronic diseases by mainstream medicine with, with these, the drugs, indeed the drugs that I was prescribed, treat the symptoms, but it's very important they don't necessarily treat the underlying cause. And it's not just those four diseases, as we talk about in the book, I was very surprised to realize that it's, it, it's not just those four diseases, but it goes all the way from obesity, type two diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, cancer, and even Alzheimer's disease, and ultimately even longevity, uh, the, the anti-aging effects. And, and just to give an example, um, the number one cause of death in this country and, and really worldwide is uh, a heart attack, cardiovascular disease affecting the heart, right? Um, and most people, when they get a heart attack, that the heart attack is due to narrowing of the blood vessels due to this atherosclerosis disease that you know you've talked about with your audience before but the blood vessels get narrowed and then the heart doesn't get enough oxygen from the blood and and you have a heart attack and the treatment the accepted treatment today is to go in and do an emergency procedure where you mechanically open up the blood vessels with a stent and that restores the blood flow 
But the interesting thing about putting stents in, it doesn't actually, it may save you in the moment so you don't die immediately from that heart attack, but it has no effect on your overall uh, death rate from, from cardiovascular disease. In other words, you will still continue to die of a heart attack at some point. And the reason is the stent only widens that one vessel and what happens is the underlying disease that is not addressed by the stents and even as i argue in the book is not adequately addressed even by statins the underlying cardiovascular disease continues to progress and the, those blood vessels get narrower even where the stent is but all the other blood vessels of the body continue to progress so things like stents or even blood pressure medicines can lower the blood pressure, but they don't address the underlying damage to the blood vessels, which continue. So the key thing about these lifestyle changes are that they get at the root cause and they actually slow down or can reverse the diseases that, that modern medicine primarily treats the symptoms for with all with these prescription drugs that we get. They may be life-saving in the moment, but overall we still move along the path to those chronic diseases. So sorry for the yeah. sorry for the derailment there. No, no, I, I you know it's very important to to emphasize that because you're right. The the symptoms aren't even necessarily and you make the case for this in your book, the symptoms are not necessarily the problem. They are a result of the problem. And sometimes they could be really disconnected and far away from the actual problem. It's the body's check engine light. Uh, so we want to look at those symptoms as a, as a gift. Okay, this is your body's way of communicating with you that something you ate, something you did, maybe you smoked too much, maybe it was alcohol, whatever it was, something that you did caused an interference in your metabolism, which we'll talk more about the metabolism myth and lies. But something you did caused interference. Now, I'm going to show you a symptom as a check engine light for you to figure out what that cause was. So medications and surgery and putting stents in. While some of these are very important short-term life-changing and life-saving, it's in, in that short term. But what happens long, it's not getting to the cause. It's kind of putting a, a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. Eventually, that blood's going to just flow right through that Band-Aid. It's not getting to the cause. So I, I'm glad that you distinguished the difference between symptoms and getting to the cause. And when we start going into your chapters, we'll go a little bit more into these specific situations with symptoms. Yeah, a great, a great analogy people use is uh, I, I walk out and my floor is, is wet. I notice the floor is wet in my house. So what do I do? I get a mop and I mop up the floor and I'm, I'm treating the symptom. And what I don't realize is that the roof is leaking and and that's sort of what's happening with some of these chronic diseases with modern medicine, that we're, we're mopping the floor with prescription drugs in some cases when lifestyle changes could, could really alleviate the need for the prescription drug and ultimately even reverse the chronic disease. That's a perfect analogy. That's exactly it. Well, something that I, that I loved in your book <clears throat> that I have here in my notes is this feast famine cycling, which our ancestors have, we're, we're, we're hardwired genetically to go through periods of feasting, periods of fasting. So in other words, in your book, you talk about TOR, mTOR versus like autophagy. And there's a lot of back and forth between people in our space and longevity space. Like mTOR is bad for you. Stay away from it at all costs. Eat a plant-based diet. Stay away from protein. And then you have the other aspect. Uh, well, they're, sorry, that same group is saying, get autophagy, get as much autophagy as possible. Then you have the other group saying too much autophagy is not good for you. You need more protein. You need more mTOR. So I want you to break down the difference between mTOR and autophagy and why there is a beautiful dance between the two. And when we could get a nice balance of both, that's when we're going to be in a good sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love mTOR. It's it's a fascinating molecule. It's 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 arguably one of the most important biological molecules ever known. But it was only discovered, really, at the beginning, almost of the twenty first century. And it's to to understand its significance. It's actually present and conserved biologically over billions of years, all the way from yeast to human beings. And it does, it does one thing. It's a nutrient sensing protein that tells the cells either to grow or repair. So if nutrients are present, largely oxygen, insulin, and glucose, 
mTOR gets turned on and cells grow, our bones grow, everything grows. Uh, and then when food is not available, mTOR switches off and we hunker down into repair mode. We start cannibalizing our cells and we, you know, we make do with what we can. Autophagy turns on and that may sound like a bad thing, but actually it's a healthy thing for us once in a while to, to, to do this. And so, um, a fascinating thing about mTOR is that it's now linked to basically every single one of the chronic diseases that that we talk about in the book and the major chronic diseases that are affecting us today and determine our lifespan and longevity. So mTOR is actually a very powerful anti-aging mechanism. And it's not only the chronic diseases of aging, but also when we change mTOR around, we actually affect the phenotypes of aging all the way from, you know, hair loss, gray hair, wrinkles, menopause, uh, hearing loss, periodontal disease. All these things actually slow down when we turn mTOR off into that autophagy mode. So back to your question, uh, the role of mTOR is to basically protect the cell because if, if food is available, you want the cell to turn on and grow. If the cell turns on and grows when food's not available, the cell will die and, and vice versa will be a bad effect. So mTOR is very, very important for survival. It's the number one survival switch in a lot of ways. Over time, it's believed, and, and nobody really knows for sure, but it's believed that mTOR in a normal organism switches back and forth because both are good. There's a balance there. In other words, sometimes turning mTOR on for growth is good, and sometimes turning mTOR off for autophagy is good. What's happened with human beings in our modern, our modern civilization, if you imagine a hunter-gatherer, you know, 50,000 years ago, mTOR will turn on when there's, you know, food available, and then maybe a few days will go by and there's no food and mTOR will be off and, and you'll get a nice balance. Well, you know, as, as everybody knows, about 12,000 years ago, that changed in, you know, what Jared Diamond and Yuval Harari says is the worst thing that ever happened to mankind. And that is the agricultural revolution, which made uh, domesticated plants available and food to be stored. So it, it began, we, we believe that it began switching mTOR. So there were fewer and fewer times when mTOR was turned off because food was available. You could store grains. And this hyper accelerated in the last 150 years when refrigeration was developed and then and processing. And then finally, in the last 30 years, ultra processed junk foods have taken over our food supply. And now people eat all the time, which turns mTOR on. And the types of foods they, they eat tend to be the types of foods that also turn mTOR on. Of the three macronutrients, primarily carbohydrates and glucose turn on mTOR. Protein has a mild effect and fat has very little effect on mTOR. So what we're seeing today is a situation where mTOR is turned on all the time, or at least an abnormally high amount of time in people. And based on the mechanisms that we understand about mTOR, there's a credible explanation of why turning on mTOR can drive all these chronic diseases that we've talked about, and even driving um, aging and shortened life expectancy. Mm, such a great breakdown. Uh, would that explain why bodybuilders, for example, die on average about 12 years? They live 12 years less than the average person. They're constantly in mTOR, eating every two to three hours, overfeeding to get a performance gain. But would, would that make sense that a lot of bodybuilders that age rapidly are constantly stuck in mTOR and that might be why they age faster? Yeah, that's a very interesting point that 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 wasn't clear in my mind until recently. The, the difference between performance optimization and longevity optimization. Like we may wanna optimize our performance for you know NFL football or to run a marathon and we get our body at a high performance state, but that sort of performance optimization may not be the same and actually may be detrimental for longevity optimization, which is just living, living a long time. And we're starting to see that now, you know, the statistic you mentioned about bodybuilders is another, 
you know, shocking statistic that's come out about uh, distance runners and sort of ultra marathon people who do a lot of activity. What we're finding is that these people have a higher amount of coronary artery calcium scores in their coronary arteries. And in addition, they also have uh, a type of myocardial fibrosis of or damage to the heart muscle that um, isn't present in people who don't do these these ultra marathons. So there's it appears for exercise there's a sweet spot in there. You know, too little is what most of us err on, which is bad, but too much is also bad. And it makes sense. You know, almost everything else you can do too much of too, but it appears with exercising and and these performance optimizations, you may be trading off your longevity for a peak performance at one thing. Oh, so important to understand that. I know when I owned a CrossFit gym here in Miami, uh, and back in two, 2013, when I was really getting into keto and fasting, I would, you know, I would do seminars at the CrossFit gym and those members and, and our coaches, they did not want to hear that message because they were all about performance and gains and PRs and the fastest wad times. But I was trying to make it clear at that time, your performance in your CrossFit gym here might not be the same thing as health and longevity. Those goals are usually not synonymous. Now they could be, but sometimes you're sac most of the time you're sacrificing years off your life to perform short term. So you made that case right now with chronic long, long distance runners. I recently had Dr. Sean O'Mara. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with, yeah, sure. he's great. He was actually just here at my studio last week. We sat down for an interview and one of his, you know, we went, we know where the top five things that lead to visceral fat. One of them was chronic endurance exercise because high chronic cortisol levels. And plus, as you know, doc, a lot of these, uh, endurance athletes are just eating a whole bunch of glucose and sugar just to kind of get through that uh, run or whatever exercise it is. So there is a difference there. But let me ask you this question. How do we know if we're getting just the right amount of mTOR uh, versus autophagy? Let's talk first about the majority of Americans. 88% uh, plus of Americans are metabolically inflexible, unhealthy. They probably need more autophagy than mTOR. So how, how do you gauge if you're getting enough of both? Uh, is there certain lab tests like a fasting insulin we could look at, maybe IGF-1? How can we gauge if we're getting a good balance of both? Yeah, the honest answer uh, about mTOR and, and measuring it is we don't know. There, there, there is no test for mTOR, so we can't, we can't check mTOR levels or check what it's positioned in. So we, we have surrogates for it. We can look at fasting glucose levels. We can look at fasting insulin levels, HA1C, and those, those uh, metabolic markers as well. But, but we we really don't have a way to measure mTOR directly. So we just, we, you know, we make inferences uh, based on what we know. I want to take a quick break from the video you're watching to share something with you that has made a big difference with my health and the thousands and thousands of students that I teach all across the world. Now, this is a unique device that has been shown to help with skin health, sore muscles, wrinkles, psoriasis, eczema, scoliosis, migraines, sleep issues, arthritis, acne, scar tissue, wound healing, relaxation, and also boost testosterone levels. What am I talking about? What is this miracle drug? Well, it's not a miracle drug. It's red light therapy. As you can see here, this is called photobiomodulation. And I use this red light therapy device every single day. Not only do I use it, my fiance uses it. Our dogs and cats love it. And the device I have here is from Bon Charge. Bon Charge has a different range of big panels, small panels, from affordable to ones that are a little bit more money, depending on how much you want. And I love this product. I feel so good. And it doesn't take a lot of time to get all these benefits. I simply take off my glasses, which is Bon Charge glasses, by the way, turn it on, and I have it running for 20 minutes once a day. And turn it on. And as you can see, I just leave it there on my desk as I work. 10, 20 minutes uh, per day will suffice. And it makes a big difference. You're going to notice a big improvement with your skin health and all the things we mentioned earlier in just a matter of weeks. So if you want to get your hands on this Bond Charge red light device or get their big panels, they also have panels that you could take on the go that are more affordable, then head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp to get 15% off your red light device. Or as a matter of fact, 
your entire order, any product, you can get 15% off with that nice coupon code KETOCAMP. So whether it's these Bond Charge blue light blocking glasses, their sauna blanket, or any of their awesome products, use that coupon code KETOCAMP at checkout. We'll drop a link down below. Go check them out. They are awesome. And let's get back to today's video. So when we're looking at fasting insulin, we're looking at A1C, you talk about these in your book. Um, it's important to see where you're at, where your baseline is at. And if you find that your markers are out of range, they're higher, then you probably need more autophagy, less mTOR, right? But if you found you're in a good sweet spot, like I am, I'm, I'm in a good range, then I could have a little bit more feast days than I would have had several years ago when I was trying to get healthy, right? So it kind of depends on where you were at in that spectrum. Um, I want to shift the conversation to different chapters you have in your book, uh, which I love the names of all these chapters. So you have chapters that go over specific lies that you taught in medical school, that you learned and taught in medical school. So you have the metabolic lie, the obesity lie, the diabetes lie. Uh, you have the fatty liver lie, hypertension lie, cardiovascular lie, the cancer lie, Alzheimer's lie, mental health and longevity lie. We don't have enough time to get, we don't have enough time on this conversation to go through all, but I want to focus on a few of them. So I want to focus, I want to start the conversation with the metabolic lie. Uh, and it's unfortunate because even to this day, Robert, we have fitness pros and dietitians and nutritionists giving that information that, look, if you want to lose weight, just eat less and move more. And you totally like disrupt that dogma and that dogmatic way of thinking and show the evidence. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Like if somebody's listening and watching and they have somebody on their butt telling them to just eat less and move more, maybe they could share this clip with them. So it helps the person understand and the person uh, that's teaching this understand better. So why does that not work? Why, why do calories matter, but they're not as important as we were once thought uh, and taught? Well, first of all, whatever we're doing is not working. There's an epidemic of obesity and overweight. Up, 50% of Americans are either overweight or obese. So whatever we're doing is not working. And as you say, the, the conventional wisdom, which is still being taught by the medical school I go to and elsewhere, is if you're overweight, you exercise more and eat less. The problem is exercising more, as everybody knows, uh, how to, if you're going to going to a big dinner, you want to work up an appetite. What do you do? You exercise. It makes you hungry. Right. It makes you consume more. Um, and and finally, ex, er, along that line, exercising in itself is is a relatively inefficient way to cons burn calories. If you want to lose weight, you uh, you change your intake of what you're eating. Exercising, you can run a long time and barely make up for that Twinkie that you ate. So that's the one thing. And then as far as uh, just eating less is um, it's problematic and it ignores the fact that uh, weight and when we put on weight is driven by a, a hormone called insulin and uh, insulin tells the body to add weight. And in fact, um, I know I can make anyone gain weight just by injecting them with insulin, no matter what they, what they eat. And I can make anyone lose weight uh, or I know that type one diabetics who don't make their own native insulin, as soon as they stop taking insulin will lose weight. So it's really um, not the total calories you eat, but it's the calories that tell the body to store fat. So certain calorie, certain calories, certain macronutrients, carbohydrates and glucose, I'm sure you've talked about this, I know, uh, drive insulin. Protein doesn't much and fats, practically not at all. So if I want to lose weight, I can eat 3000 calories of fat and protein and my body will not store fat. And it, it makes sense. You know, a, a, a glazed donut of, you know, same number of calories as a couple hard boiled eggs, our body handles them very differently as far as what causes me to store fat and lose fat. So I think those are the basic problems with eating more and exercising less. And there, there are more and more studies that, that document this in a, you know, at least in a limited way. Yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, Gary Tobbs, who you referenced in the book a lot, he, he's done a great job exposing that lie as well. Uh, it's not that we're denying calories. It's that we're saying it's not the most important thing to focus on. I think it's a huge distraction personally, takes away from hormones and like you said, insulin. And what you just mentioned about protein, about carbs, protein, and fat, and the insulin response for that. 
it parallels into what you said about 10 minutes ago about carbs, protein, and fat, and how that is going to activate mTOR in different levels, right? You said the same thing. Carbs and um, sugar will activate mTOR and insulin a, a lot more than protein, very minimal, and, and fat, uh, barely anything, right? So it goes hand in hand with what you just said with mTOR, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. So that, that's the lie, and there's a lot more regarding the calories in versus calories out dogma. Um, like you said, if you ate hard-boiled eggs versus some glazed donuts, you're, there's going to be a completely different response. You're going to feel very different. Your energy levels will be completely different with the eggs versus the donuts. And, and also, sorry, oh, go ahead. one last point, also yeah. the hunger effect uh, that you've talked about on your show, I know, but uh, just not to be overlooked, if I eat carbohydrates, 100 calories of carbohydrates, I'm going to be hungry again, and I'm going to want more, you know, that one potato chip thing. But if I eat 100 calories of cheese, let's say, which is largely, you know, largely fat, um, I can eat one piece of cheese and walk away. I cannot eat one potato chip and walk away. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering junk food addict myself. I know the, the mental pressures of junk food. And I, you know, I had to, I fight that battle with myself every day. Yeah, I, I could I could relate in some sense. I used to have a big battle with junk food as well. But you're so right. When you eat fat and protein, you activate these different hormones and chemicals that signal satiety, right? Leptin, cholecystokinin, peptide YY. You don't get that with processed carbs. That's why when you're done eating a big steak and they offer you a free steak, you're like, there's no way I could eat that. But they offer you some ice cream. Uh, sure, I got room for that, right? Because it doesn't activate the same hormones. You could go at it with the ice cream. So that is, is very important. Uh, and, and I know you're a big fan of keto and fasting, especially because so many people have hyperinsulinemia. And that'll let's transition to that conversation, right? Um, you gave some really alarming stats when it comes to prediabetes and diabetes. You said one in three adult Americans are either diabetic or prediabetic, and 80% of them don't even know it. So let's talk about that because that insulin is making a lot of noise for a very long time and it takes 10 15 years before that glucose changes so let's talk about what is happening when somebody is consuming high carbs and eating frequently and although they might not be diagnosed with diabetes or pre-diabetes in a few years what's happening to the beta cells in their pancreas well i i agree what you said uh, about the risk of pre-diabetes and diabetes but I think it's even worse than that. Um, my thinking has changed. I used to think that um, like many diseases, some people either got it or they didn't get it, you know, based on genetics, environment, that sort of thing. My thinking has changed and it's based on some studies that have recently come out that one, one study was a large number of non-diabetic adult Americans from the Framingham data and from the NHANES data. And they looked at their marker for their diabetes marker, their insulin resistance marker, which is, uh, they didn't look at fasting insulin, they looked at hemoglobin A1C, which is this similar similar fact. And, and as everybody knows, you know, your hemoglobin A1C, once it crosses a certain threshold, like 6.5 or so, then your doctor diagnoses you as a diabetic and you he or she can charge for the visit and they can prescribe metformin and insulin and all that sort of stuff. But before that, they really can't because you're not, you're not a diabetic yet. Well, what they found interestingly with these non-diabetic adult Americans was that their HA1C, in other words, their insulin resistance marker or their damage due to sugar increases with age. And the older you get, the higher your HA1C gets over time. It just creeps up like that. And what the way I think about it now is that we're all on the path to type two diabetes. We are all, most of us, maybe not a hundred percent, but most people generally, our HA1C gets older, the older we get. And formal type two diabetes is basically it's, it's in our future of all of us. If we live long enough, it's sort of like gray hair. If I don't die of something else, I will eventually, you know, get gray hair. Um, I think type two diabetes and insulin resistance based on these numbers with the HA1C levels creeping up across the population with age, I think we're all on the path now to HA1 to diabetes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just means that, it's suddenly not, well, I'm not diabetic. I don't have to worry about, you know, my carbs or I don't have to worry about 
mTOR, these other things? Well, actually, I think we all do in a sense. Uh, one, for the reason that we're, we're creeping up our HA1C is increasing all of us over time with age, but also for a lot of reasons that turning on mTOR causes a lot of bad things in addition to diabetes, driving all the chronic diseases. Uh, so that study about the older we get, the higher our insulin and, and uh, A1C levels climb. I wonder if that's still the case for individuals who are doing what we do um, in more of like the biohacking longevity space, because I don't know what the frame of reference was with the, the patients they surveyed, because the average American, I mean, 88% plus, um, I, would, I would find that it's believable for those individuals. But for us, I find it hard to believe that it's inevitable before I get type 2 diabetes if I live to 120, even though I'm doing all the things that I'm doing. So can we just uh, clarify whether you believe that is the case for all humans or for the majority of people who are not really doing some of the longevity things that we follow? Yeah, to be clear, the 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 paper I'm citing and others I'm aware of didn't didn't subdivide that just because they didn't have the data. So it was a population wide study showing that HA1C was increasing. So what I take home from that, or my inference, is that um, absent changing our diets, we are all on this path. But as you say, there are other studies that show very clearly with uh, people that eliminate junk food and eliminate carbohydrates from their diet, they can actually reverse their HA1C levels and bring them way down. So I, I would agree with you that um, while the general population has increasing HA1C levels, I think that we all have the, the choice to to not go down that path if we pay attention to our lifestyle, junk food, and diet. Yeah, exactly. And that's why conversations like this in your book are, are so important. Because let's face it, um, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance are a lifestyle-caused uh, disease, and they're all reversible. Type 1, we're not talking about that, but type 2 and insulin resistance, yes. And you gave some stats that I was not aware of when it comes to some of the financial gain of people having diabetes, right? So in 2013, your book says sales of insulin and other diabetes drugs reached $23 billion. And that's according to data from IMS Health, which is more than the combined revenue for the NFL, the major uh, league baseball, and the NBA uh, which is interesting. So let's talk about the way that diabetes is currently being treated. Uh, I know that when my dad had uh, type 2 diabetes, I didn't really understand it as a kid. I just remember my dad taking insulin and medication. And then as, a, as an adult, uh, uh, 22, 23 years old, I still didn't understand it. And so my dad got really sick and ended up um, suffering a massive stroke and then it, it left him mm -hmm. paralyzed and he ended up losing his life, which raised a lot of questions for me which is wow. part of the reason why like, I'm in this space because I want to learn and, and prevent others from suffering like my dad did and I did. So I remember my dad was taking insulin and he kept gaining weight. And I was asking his conventional doctor because his doctor said he needs to lose weight to manage the diabetes better. And then he would gain weight. And I remember looking up insulin and it says it causes weight gain. So it didn't really make sense to me. Um, I know that there are different meds over the years that have come out. So there's some meds that lower glucose. Um, that that put glucose uh, take glucose out of the bloodstream and pack it into different parts of the body, which show you it's lowering your blood glucose levels. There is insulin, which does something similar, and then there are medications that cause you to pee out excess glucose. So let's let's talk about the most common treatments and why there none of them are getting to the cause. Yeah, uh, well, th th basically. If, if you accept the cause is just dietary, then um, all, these, all these other effects, all these other treatments are going to be downstream. And, and like insulin, it's for type 2 diabetics, it may save their life. In other words, preventing them from dying from an acute uh, uh, hyperglycemia episode of too much glucose. But ultimately, the effects of high insulin on our body uh, drive mTOR and drive the chronic diseases that that we see and ultimately, you know, have higher risks of cancer, have higher risks of heart attack, have higher risks of Alzheimer's disease. So insulin's probably um, 
although it's life-saving for type 1 diabetics, for type 2 diabetics, if you can manage it with diet, uh, that's that's the way to do it. Now, there, it's interesting. There's certain drugs, there's certain diabetic drugs that actually have a reputation for longevity and actually making people live longer. Yeah. Insulin is not one of them. You know, insulin yeah. is life-saving for a hyperglycemic episode, but people don't biohack and take insulin because they know it, you know, it, it basically has these bad effects. But there are a couple that we can talk about. One is metformin. Um, metformin, nobody really knows how it works. It, 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 it works somehow on the liver to decrease uh, glucose levels and your bloodstream will decrease glucose levels or your HA1C will change. I mean, recently papers have come out saying that no, met, way metformin works is on the gut microbiome and you know it, it only works there. So it's unlike some drugs like rapamycin, which is a very clean targeted drug, Metformin is a very dirty drug in the sense that it has many, many effects in many different areas. So it's not clear the mechanism, but the effect is lowering, lowering glucose. And it's interesting that there is um, uh, some evidence, some pretty good evidence that metformin increases the lifespan of certain organisms and possibly even human beings when it's, when it's taken. And why would that be? Well, if it lowers the glucose and doesn't have any other negative effects, then lowering glucose is going to turn mTOR off and it's going to be beneficial from that way. So why doesn't insulin lowers glucose too, right? Well, insulin actually turns on mTOR. So when you take mm -hmm. insulin, you turn mTOR on, you drive hyperplasia, all these other things. There's one other drug uh, called acarbose, which is a uh, diabetic drug. Um, Diabetics take it, um, and it's an interesting drug because it doesn't doesn't really get absorbed. It doesn't work in our body. The place it works is in our gut, and the way it works is it blocks the absorption of glucose and carbohydrates in our into our bloodstream. So, people typically uh, when they take a carbose, they do it after a uh, fatty or after a uh, carb meal that they have a lot of carbs, and that that prevents their blood from spiking and does that. But an interesting thing happened with uh, some longevity experts uh, began using a carbos with another by itself. And it actually increased the lifespan of uh, mice that were taking it. And when they combined it with rapamycin, which is the most powerful lifespan extending uh, drug, which works incidentally by turning down mTOR, uh, when they combined acarbose and rapamycin, they got a dramatic compound effect of life extension, at least in this mammalian animal model. But it's to the point that now uh, human human uh, experimenters are are taking rapamycin and acarbose off label and metformin for its longevity effects. But a lot of these effects are through the manipulation of the glucose levels in our body related to you know what we're talking about with diabetes fascinating you you take rapamycin yourself don't you i do yeah uh how long have you been taking that taking it about uh three years you're doing it for the longevity benefits because the science makes sense to you on that yeah i mean it's yeah, I am. Although rapamycin is FDA approved initially for organ transplants, which, you know, I don't have, but it's also FDA approved if you coat stents in like the heart attack stents, oh. rapamycin will stop the atherosclerosis from reoccurring. So there's, there's question that rapamycin taken orally may slow down atherosclerosis. You know, nobody knows, but there's a study there. Rapamycin is also FDA approved for several cancers. It stops for metastatic renal cell cancer and other cancers as a primary treatment for these cancers or secondary treatment. So rapamycin has effects not only on cardiovascular disease, but also on treatment. And there are now some animal studies where rapamycin actually slows cognitive impairment and reverses cognitive impairment in the mouse model to the point that the University of Texas and others are now doing studies with rapamycin for Alzheimer's disease patients. So it, cool. a, lot of, a lot of effects of rapamycin, not just for longevity, but by, um, by slowing down these chronic diseases. And then 
the phenotypes of aging, you know, in the mouse, rapamycin grows the hair back, makes the gray hair go away. In the human model, it, it reverses uh, skin changes with aging when you apply it as a skin cream. With hearing loss, it, it affects the cochlear cells in the animal model so that they regain hearing from age-related hearing loss. In menopause, in the animal model, rapamycin actually slows down menopause and restores ovarian fertility. And people are looking at all of these things in humans now with rapamycin. It's, it's a fascinating drug. This, this whole mTOR model, you know, we're just scraping the surface on it. And also, you know, for diabetes, obviously. Yeah, very fascinating. It's very interesting. So with insulin and metformin, both are lowering blood glucose. But the question is, where is the blood glucose going um, if it's not being burned off? So let me ask you that question. If they're not changing their lifestyle, and type 2 diabetics, and they're just eating the same way, which is uh, going to be a high-carbohydrate diet and eating frequently, but they're taking either insulin and metformin, where does the sugar go? So it's a good question. The um, the carbohydrates with the with the metform. Well, first of all, with the insulin, the sugar is uh, it's taken up by the cells and and burned or stored as fat. And insulin, like we talked about, is the fat storage mechanism. With with um, metformin, there's less insulin produced by you know the pathways like gluconeogenesis and stuff. So some of the insulin is coming from other sources even, but for whatever reason, it's decreased insulin that's released into the bloodstream. Um, it's not, metformin is not known to increase fat storage. So people taking metformin don't tend to get fat. I mean, the, the main side effect with metformin is GI distress, but that may be related to the GI effects of the metformin mechanism, which, like I said earlier, we really don't understand yet. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Both drugs lower glucose, but one turns mTOR on and is has a negative effect on chronic disease is a bad effect. The other one turns mTOR off, which is, which is the metformin, and that has longevity effects and presumably, you know, health benefits for all these chronic diseases as well, possibly. Hmm, yeah. And, and I, I know Dr. Fung says just giving a type two diabetic more insulin to treat their type two diabetes is like giving an alcoholic more alcohol to treat their alcoholism, <laughs> right? Just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we know that the goal is to reduce, uh, re um, reduce your, your carbohydrate intake and the frequency so get more insulin sensitive because that's the, the mismatch there. Conventional dogma when it comes to type 2 diabetes is that we need to treat the blood glucose. That is the problem. But what we have found is that, no, no, that is a result of the problem. The real problem is hyperinsulin anemia. Uh, there has been too much insulin for too many years. Now the cells are full of sugar. The liver is fatty, which you have a whole chapter about fatty liver. The pancreas is now fatty. We need to actually start pulling fat from the pancreas, from the liver, from other cells. And we do that with a low-carb keto diet, intermittent fasting, some of the principles you talk about in your book. Then you get more insulin sensitive, and that's how you're able to reverse these uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Is that a fair explanation, Doc? Absolutely. And, you know, in your program, uh, you know, with Keto Camp and all uh, fits right into uh, <laughs> right into doing this. Yeah, uh, we love talking about this. I, I love the book. Like I said, you're speaking my language. Let's finish up with uh, one more chapter here. And that's uh, the chapter about the cardiovascular lie. And you've got to touch upon cardiovascular disease throughout this conversation. But let's go a little bit deeper. It's the most com the most common question that I get on social media is, Ben, I started doing keto or carnivore and I'm down 70 pounds and I feel incredible, but my cholesterol is up, my LDL is up, and my doctor says I need to stop doing this diet. Okay, let's help them understand that it's a lot of moving parts with cardiovascular disease. And if you could just unpack some of those most common lies that we have been told with cardiovascular disease and how to understand their, those markers a little bit better. Yeah, the and this is this is a key point. The 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 understanding of fat and its relationship to cardiovascular disease. And at the end of the day, you know, nobody really knows. And intelligent people can agree to disagree. But the way I read the literature is that uh, well, 
first of all, even the American Heart Association now acknowledges it used to be people didn't eat eggs because they were afraid of dietary cholesterol. You could still go to restaurants in my town and get an egg white omelet, you know, to avoid the egg yolk, you know. Yum. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so we now accept that dietary cholesterol doesn't affect blood cholesterol. And the question is, does blood cholesterol, how big a role does that play in your risk for primarily heart attacks? Because that's the number one killer. And, you know, the statistic is that half of people who come into emergency rooms for heart attack have a normal blood cholesterol. So, and, you know, and statins, of course, the elephant in the room, it's a trillion dollar industry uh, to lower blood cholesterol, these blood, these drugs. And we, we took, go into a lot of detail in the book, but basically the, I, I think statins are associated with a slight improvement in, in uh, heart attack, heart attack risk and, and lowering cholesterol is a, lowers risk factor for heart attacks, but it's a very small factor when, when we look at other things. In particular, you can look at what's called the hazard ratio, and we have a picture of it in the graph, and you can see your, your LDL cholesterol elevation, the hazard of that causing a heart attack versus something like type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance or metabolic disease are orders of magnitude higher or smoking even all there's so many other things that can cause the heart attack um and so my position is that uh that the the danger of cholesterol has been overstated and we still don't really understand it enough to know and and certainly you know as you've talked about before our nation has been on a an experiment since the 1960s and 70s a low fat experiment where the health pyramid and the national recommendations were that we replace, we go on low fat diets and we replace fats with basically sugar. And I think that along with other things like seed oils and other factors uh, is to blame for where we are now with, with the junk food epidemic and our chronic disease epidemic. Great, great explanation. It makes so much sense. Put your energy into these metabolic diseases like insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. Work on that. And uh, that should be, I, I agree, that should be the main focus. And I know Dr. Sean O'Mara is a big believer that also visceral fat and measuring your visceral fat with MRI. Like if you have very minimal visceral fat, even if you have high cholesterol or LDL, you're at very low risk because it's what these high um, concentration of visceral fat does to release these um, cytokines and different inflammatory uh, processes. But I, I'm with you. Um, there might be a slight improvement in um, reducing cardiovascular events with the statin. Very, very small compared to what happens when you actually get optimal insulin levels and optimal inflammatory levels. So for me, I know that my total LDL when I'm on keto or carnivore is usually high but I'll get the LDL particles and I'll see that it's actually the larger LDL that is higher and the smaller is a little bit lower. And that to me, of course, we know through that's what we want to see. But also my inflammatory markers are optimal. My A1C is optimal. My fasting insulin is optimal. So even if my total cholesterol is high, I personally don't give a crap because I feel great and all my other markers look, look great. So I love that. And your book goes into some good details about Ansel Keys and like you said, the low fat movement, the seed oil movement, and how that relates to all these metabolic diseases. The book was really well researched and done. How long did it take for you to write it? Uh, it was, well, it was uh, just gathering information over a few years since I started this, since I had these chronic diseases myself and, and uh, just sort of was born of that. I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait for my audience to get it. By the way, for those watching and listening, you can pre-order the book right now. We're going to drop a link for you to pre-order the book. It's going to be out in 2024. You'll get updates uh, along the way for those who do pre-order. And you also have a gift for them to get a free download uh, chapter, correct, uh, Sure. Robert? Yeah, if you want a sample chapter, we have the first chapter that's available on my website, uh, both in audio form and in, in a PDF. You're welcome to take a look at it and, and see what you think. What's your website? It's robertlufkinmd.com. It's L-U-F as in Frank, K-I-N-M-D.com. And then uh, 
just go to the lies part and there's a free chapter assigned there. Everybody get that. And I think you're going to be so inspired to want to pre-order it when, once you read that. It's going to be, it's so good. I, I loved everything you put into the book because it's, it's one of those books. Here's what I think um, is the best way to use the book for my audience. Gift the book to your doctor. <laughs> like buy a copy for your conventional doctor who thinks keto is crazy and, and fasting is crazy because you have a medical doctor, Dr. Robert here, who's talking about the things that you're doing and approving of them and giving the research. It's one of those books you want to use as kind of um, a talking point for your doctor. What do you think about that, doc? Because a lot of doctors are closed off to the idea of doing keto and fasting. Could this be a good uh, way to open up that door for them? Yeah, well, I mean, I made a point to try and reference, uh, you know, when things are quoted there, we're referencing primary peer-reviewed articles, not just review articles. So hopefully that would appeal to an open-minded physician who wants to look deeper at this area. Yeah, I think it will. So get the book. Uh, I have one more question for you. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to interrupt the video real quick to share with you what I believe is one of the most important nutrients that we should be taking every single day. Most people are deficient in this nutrient and it's responsible for over 400 enzymatic activities in your body and your body just doesn't make it. So it's required to be taken in a high quality supplement or from high quality foods. The problem with the food is that our soil is depleted and it's hard to get this quality nutrient. So what is this nutrient? It's called magnesium, but I'm gonna share something with you. Very fascinating. Check this out. Upgraded Formulas has this incredible product called Upgraded Magnesium. And Barton Scott, the developer of this product and company, he's a brilliant guy. He created nanoparticle magnesium, which has the ability to penetrate your membranes and go right into your cell. There's a 99.99% absorption rate. Now, this is unheard of because with other magnesium products, you better believe it's not that high. And there's an interesting study they're doing with Upgraded Mag. I want to share with you real quick. Early results from a sleep study with Dr. Sachin Patel showed that the average doctor in the group using this product has achieved an improvement of over 35% in deep sleep, more sleep studies than a double-blind controlled placebo study with Upgraded Magnesium is coming sooner. And you better believe those results are going to be super exciting. We already know this. Upgraded Magnesium is easily the best supplement you can take for better sleep, including deep sleep, muscle aches, cramping, and any other signs of a magnesium deficiency, which is so common, unfortunately. What makes Upgraded Formulas unique, as I mentioned, is that it's a nanoparticle. This means it is absorbed very rapidly and efficiently by your blood cells. They produce a plasma-like version of minerals that the body recognizes and absorbs without digestion. And the results are phenomenal. I really believe just taking this for a couple of nights, you'll notice a big difference. So if you want to get Upgraded Formulas, Upgraded Mag, and any of their products. They also do some incredible hair mineral analysis tests to see your mineral imbalances and deficiencies, et cetera, and other incredible products that we've referenced before. Head over to upgradedformulas.com and use the coupon code KETOSIS to get 15% off your entire order. That is upgradedformulas.com. Coupon code is KETOSIS to get 15% off your entire order. I'm going to drop a link for you down below in the notes of this video. Okay, let's go back to this video. The question is about my favorite supplement. I think it's better than rapamycin in terms of longevity benefits, although I am intrigued about rapamycin. So I call it vitamin G, and I call it vitamin G because it's a vitamin gratitude. Uh, my shirt <laughs> has it right there, gratitude. So the question is, Robert, what do you have vitamin G for today? What are you grateful for today? Wow. I'm, I'm grateful to uh, have friends like you and be on this podcast. I'm, I'm grateful for my family and my kids, and I'm grateful for the knowledge that this information is changing and the possible benefit it can have on people's lives so they, so they don't get these chronic diseases unnecessarily. Mm, so important. And you're doing a great job empowering people and helping them understand that it's not a chronic progressive disease. You got control. Your DNA is not your destiny. I cannot wait for the book to be released into the world. So for those who are watching and listening, 
share this episode with a friend. Robert, you also have a podcast. Share a little bit more about your podcast and your YouTube channel as well. Yeah, yeah, we have a video podcast that uh, that Ben was on recently, and and uh, it comes out once a week. And I think we're gonna we're gonna have this episode on our podcast as well. Uh, yeah, you've got such great questions as always, Ben. So uh, we're gonna include it there. Thank you, I appreciate that, and I'm gonna put that in the notes down below. So everybody, go subscribe to uh, Dr. Robert's YouTube channel and podcast. We're also gonna be speaking together at a conference, Biohacking Expo in February of 2024 in Miami. I'll put details down below. So Robert, and we'll do a round two in person. So can't wait to see you. Thank you so much for the research you put into your book and for coming on the show and educating us today, brother. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Ben. I'm a huge fan of your work and your show. And thank you for all the great that you're, the good that you're doing in, in the world. Likewise, thank you, brother. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care, diagnosis, or treatment, or the creation of a phys- physician, patient, or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value of please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel and we take the your suggestions and advice very seriously so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time